hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back. Some days we don't like what we see in the mirror. Some days we do. The same can be said of a community. Our guest this segment is using the camera to get a picture of our region. She, too, has found things to like and then, well, not so much. She's putting it all out there in a web video series titled Smoke City, now in its second season. She is native St. Louisan, Cammie Thomas. Cammie, great to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, tell us what this Smoke City is all about. What about that title? So that title came from a phrase that I heard a lot when I came back from college. I went to college in New Orleans, and I came back in 2015, so that was after everything really popped off in Ferguson, after everything happened with the Darren Wilson case with, with Mike Brown, and um, there was a lot of drama, and there was a lot of, um, there was a huge explosive moment in St. Louis, but when I came back and some time had passed, I heard a lot a lot of people saying, you know, it's good that you came back after the smoke has cleared. The smoke has cleared. We're good now. We've solved those problems. And I just didn't quite feel that way. I felt like time had passed, but the work hadn't really been done quite yet to really get us to where we were and to get us to a place where we wouldn't have a moment like that again. So when people would say the smoke has cleared, I would I'd kind of ask for clarification in that. So um, the title Smoke City comes from the fact that I thought there was still smoke around and still smoke to be cleared and, and conversations to be had. That's how I came up with the title. So we are not good now. Um, I think we're getting there. But I mm. think, you know, there's a saying that time heals all. And I think that's partially true. But I think what's more so true is that work mixed with time gets you where you want to go. And it felt like the time was going past. But the conversations, they were still a little bit top line. And I, I didn't think we were... Um, as good as we could be, you know, and, and having the conversations and connections that we, you know, really seizing those opportunities to move further as a community. How did you decide to go about it in this particular way, the video, the web series? <clears throat> um, it's funny you ask that because uh, initially I wanted to do it as some sort of a written piece and maybe interview people, maybe take pictures or something like that. But there's nothing like hearing someone's story from their own voice and and giving them the opportunity to take you on a tour and of a journey of their house, their neighborhood, their street. And there's really no way to capture that besides through a lens. It seemed like the best way to go about it. And um, people have to have a lot of trust in you to open that door and to let you come in, especially with a camera and, and knowing that me and my team are going to respect their story and honor their story. So it seemed like the best way to do it, the most respectful way to, to enter someone else's space and really give them the opportunity to feel like they were getting their story across. And I've seen several of the episodes, and you really have done that, Just found just plain folks and really just get in their comfort zone, in their homes and mm -hmm. places where they do feel comfortable. For sure. How do you, how do you find these people? Um, some of them, I, I would just write on Facebook and say, hey, I'm going to mm -hmm. do this thing. I'm going to do this project. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone who wants to show me their neighborhood? Or is there anyone who thinks that their neighborhood has a misconception that they would like to clear up? And people would comment or uh, text me or even email me. And in the first season, I sort of asked around and um, just went through my own network. But in the second season, people actually reached out directly to me. For example, for uh, the Dogtown episode, mm -hmm. Michelle, I didn't know her before, and we have no um, connections in common, but she just emailed me and said, hey, a lot of people don't really know what Dogtown is about. Would you mind coming in and, and doing that? And that's why that's the first episode is with, with that. So just sort of asking around. 
You've got to teach her how to make a left-hand turn in the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to learn something. <laughs> it was, that was a fun day in the car. <laughs> what did you learn about – I mean, what did you know about Dogtown before going in and, and, and doing this particular video? Um, well, I had a friend who mm-hmm. grew up in Dogtown, um, a high school friend. So I, I'd spent a little bit of time there, but I didn't realize that Dogtown were – what even counted as Dogtown um, and that it, it actually – it, it sort of encompasses several different areas and different parks. And there were mm-hmm. points where we were in Dogtown that I had no idea that that's where we were. I thought I was in Brentwood or something like that. So I think the most important thing is I even learned where it actually is. And what about the, the situation in Dogtown? What did you find there with regard to, to people getting along and the diversity and things of that type? Um, I think that um, Michelle's perspective, and that's who that's who we interviewed, her perspective as a – um, how she said it, a white passing Panamanian woman was very interesting and, and kind of growing up and seeing that there's not a ton of diversity, but she feels that the community was pretty open still and um, maybe got a reputation for being one particular way when it really is more tailored to kind of young families and students around WashU because WashU and SLU are nearby and things like that. So I think the demographic, even age-wise or um, family status-wise, whatever, was a lot different than I assumed when I first went in. We'll talk about some of the other specific communities you visited, but 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 as I saw the series, the uh, you really are challenging viewers to, as you, you put it, I believe, coming out of their bubble. Right. Yeah. And... and it, how is that challenge being met, do you think, overall, given the, the time you spent doing this? Um, I would say, you know, the most challenging thing even for myself, just to kind of take it back, I grew up in North County, mm-hmm. so I'm from Florissant, and I went to high school in Ladue. So for me, a very different contrast in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. economic and racial being the, the, the major two. And the only way you can get out of your bubble and kind of out of the sheltered mindset of growing up on your own in your own neighborhood is to talk to other people. I mean, you can assume things, you can do research, you can look at the statistics, you can Google pictures, but until you physically go and speak to someone and experience it for yourself, you're not really challenging yourself in the way that um, would actually get the work done. So the point of the series was to just give people a piece. You know, I wouldn't expect anyone to completely know Dogtown now after, you know, having seen one person's perspective of it. But it's just to show people it really is that simple. It really is as simple as going, driving out there, you know, maybe not knocking on someone's door uh, randomly. But if you see someone at a bar or a restaurant, it really is as simple as having a conversation with them. And you, you'll never know where, where that will lead eventually. So just so, the first step. Did you have any preconceived notions going into this? Um, I did, and I didn't know that I, I – I don't think anyone wants to admit, admit that they have implicit biases. And, mm-hmm. you know, being someone who grew up in North County but um, went to North City where my grandparents live and U City where my other grandparents live, and I, I bounced around a lot, so I really did think I had a pretty comprehensive view of what St. Louis was. But, of course, <clears> when you speak to people, you're surprised. Every single person, every neighborhood, I was surprised by something or another, which is sort of the joy of it all. Mm-hmm. Um even going into it, you're never, as a filmmaker or a journalist, you're never an authority necessarily. It's just you're kind of the tour guide. So that's what I wanted to act as, as a tour guide for other St. Louisans who weren't too familiar with different areas. But again, it's it's more of a tour guide of here's an introduction, now now do the work yourself. Mm-hmm. Now go ahead and go into the community and have a similar conversation. It was the Michael Brown shooting that uh, kind of got you going in this direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the conversations you've had, how many people did you find that were affected by that or, or even changed by that uh, incident? Everyone. 
everyone. I don't know a person in St. Louis who wasn't changed in some <clears throat> regard. I mean, I think um, for for Black St. Louisans, that was um, probably, at least for me, I mean, the most life changing event that I have ever experienced. Uh, and it was it was something that was impending, or more so, the the reaction around it was something that had was. Um, I I knew that we would get to that moment, an explosive moment where, you know, it was sort of the last straw. So it, it was coming, especially being in St. Louis, kind of growing up with my experience with the, with the police and kind of knowing that that relationship was rocky as it was. I mean, it was it just sort of was uh, it was inevitable, I guess is the word I want to say. But I, I think with everyone in St. Louis, no matter who you are, or where you lived, living through that event and seeing the community change in that way and the community explode in that way um you'd have to not be paying attention for it to not affect you in some kind of way for sure it was really an an eye-opener for a lot of white people in the community because they had no idea the kinds of things that were revealed by this ultimately with Mm -hmm. regard to the courts and all the rest of it they had no idea that was going on but didn't come as any surprise to uh, the african-american community right it's interesting even that you say that because it took a lot of self-reflection and, and work for myself to not get upset when I would speak to some of my white friends or maybe other people who said, oh, I had no idea that this was happening, as if the <clears throat> black community hadn't been saying it. It's like we should never have to get to a point where the um, the protests and the riots were the only things, the only reasons that were being heard, because the points that were made then were were made in the decades before, too, just maybe quieter or maybe through, um, you know, through petitions or through voting or through whatever else. Those points had been being made. But, you know, it, the, the human condition is such that you can only take so much pressure before it's, again, it's inevitable that, that something bigger happens or it pops off. So, I mean, I'm sure it was an eye-opener for a lot of different communities. I think an important lesson in that, though, is that... Um, you know, Martin Luther King said, a riot is the language of the unheard. So a good question I would ask for any community that experiences riots on a regular basis the way we do is, what are we not hearing as a community? And why do people constantly feel pushed to this to this limit? And, and what are ways that we can listen before, have conversations before people are pushed to that point? So... For, for all of the attention that the Michael Brown shooting got here across the country and across the world, actually, because it yeah. really made headlines uh, almost everywhere, um, not much has changed. I mean, there have been a number of incidents since there in Baltimore and in New York and Cleveland and Cincinnati and Charleston, places like that, indicating that, well, you know, maybe we haven't come very far since our eyes were opened. I think that's a good point. I mean, I... I I don't know the easy solution to that or the easy answer to that. I mean, I agree. It's something that's been going on since, I mean, for decades. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, as far as the black community's relationship with the police, it's nothing new. I mean, I grew up, you know, when you when you hear about learning to drive when you're a teenager, you think, okay, this is how, you know, stop at a stop sign, red light. I learned before any of that, this is how you act if you're ever pulled over. Mm-hmm. This is where you keep your license. This is where you keep your hands. And it's I learned that before I learned how to parallel park, and mm-hmm. that's just my experience, and that's the experience of a lot of people. So it's nothing new. It, it's something that has it, it's defined my life. I thought it was normal, and it, I see it all, you know, obviously all around the world. It's still happening. Around the country, it's still happening. Um, and, you know, I, I think 
again, the first step, there's a lot of different areas or directions you could take, but I think the first step is having conversations and hearing people out and believing people when they tell you different things, believing people before they get to the point that they feel like they're screaming and yelling. You know, if, if someone says, hey, in this community, the relationship with the police isn't good, and these are the reasons why, um, and, and really sitting down and having the conversation. Well, sometimes referred to as the talk in the black community in which yeah. the parents, apparently that's what happened with, with you as well. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned earlier on your own experiences with the police. What kind of experiences are we talking about? <clears throat> <laughs> that's that's tough. I mean, there's almost too many to count. I think overall— Driving while black, that kind of thing. Is that what we're talking about? Right, exactly. <clears throat> you know, that's— there's a lot of different stories I guess I can tell I, I would be able to tell in that area, but I think just overall, just to kind of put them all together, is that you just never know. I never know if if, if I'm being pulled over, if it's going to be just fine and they're going to be really nice because that's happened before, or if this is going to be someone who's going to be very aggressive and that I need to act like my life is in danger. And since I can't tell the difference if I interact with a police officer, I just, for my own safety, have to assume uh, kind of have to assume the worst to keep myself safe is what it feels like. And I have been pleasantly surprised by really great interactions and literally visibly be surprised and shocked. And I remember I had an officer comments on like how shocked I looked that the interaction was going so well. But it's just I have to go into it or I was taught that I have to go into it as if this could be, you know, a more of a dangerous situation. So I view every single interaction um you know, as if something bad could happen, unfortunately, because that's just the case, and it's what I've seen, it's what I've experienced. Wow. So, but yeah. Do your white friends get that? Um, no, <laughs> not really. I mean, well, I, I mean, I know, again, I, I grew up in Florissant, very diverse area, and I went to school in an area that wasn't so diverse necessarily, but I mean, I've had experiences <clears throat> being pulled over when I'm driving with friends of various races and had, you know, and been treated differently or better. Or I know I was driving with a friend from high school, a white friend, really great friend of mine, in the passenger seat, and she was visibly shocked. She was like, I can't believe he talked to you like that. I can't believe, you know, whatever. But again, that's just bringing it back to the importance of conversations and the importance of listening more than talking is that, um, you know, I I don't want to – I could get into, you know, why she didn't know that beforehand, but the important thing is after that interaction she understood what my – experience was and that then changed the way she looked at things and it changed her perspective in a way of saying okay like it put context to things for her and I don't necessarily think people should have to know someone to to be able to empathize but that often is the case so I think you know regardless of what my experience has been and what my white friend's experience has been I do know when we sit down and we talk and listen to each other and respect each other enough to to value each other's experience, I've seen beautiful things, and only beautiful things come from that. So, I mean, yes, it's it's obvious. Me and my white friends have had different experiences growing up in the city, but where we come together is when we sit down and listen to each other and, and, and respect each other's perspectives. And that's something I had to learn to do as well, is, is to respect the fact that some of my friends have had a different experience. And it doesn't make them a bad person that they've had a different experience or a safer experience, but, um, you know, valuing what they have to say and they value what I have to say. And that's where I see the most beauty. And I see a lot of it coming from St. Louis. So as far as even if things are getting better, the conversations go better. It feels, I feel listened to, I feel heard. And, and hopefully the people I talk to, we feel the same thing. So, you know, I see progress there. What kind of feedback have you had from the uh, Smoke City series? Uh, pretty good feedback, mm. actually. I think... You know, the most 
common feedback I'll get from people is if, you know, they'll say, I didn't know that Ferguson looked like that. I didn't know it just looked like a normal suburb community, whatever, or people saying, I didn't know, you know, I, I interviewed my, my cousins in Chesterfield. Um, and people said, I, you know, I didn't really expect that to be a Chesterfield family or, you know, when I imagine a family from Chesterfield, I don't necessarily imagine the people that you, that you covered. That's very interesting that you did that. So I, I like, it, it seems like the most common feedback is just sort of shock about one of the episodes, which is the point. I mean, cause I had that, you know, kind of a similar experience and, and shock going into various communities. I'd say that's the most common feedback. You know, the Chesterfield episode in particular kind of struck me because, number one, that you, you went as far out as Chesterfield, yeah. but, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense to do that. But the situation that was explained with regard to um, white neighbors having African-American neighbors it was, was, was a shock and was a problem for some. Can you relate just very quickly what yeah. that was all about? Yeah, for sure. So my cousin, mm. I have two cousins. My cousin Candace is related to me, and she married Mark, who's also my cousin. Mm. So Candace is black, Mark is white. Um, and Mark has lived there since he was in high school, and he bought the house from his parents. So now it's the, th- uh, the two of them and their lovely child. Um, but, yeah, Mark had a neighbor, a white man, um, who, who saw another neighbor down the street who's a black woman, gardening in her own garden in her in her yard and had commented this man commented to mark again my cousin a a white male um you know wow what a great neighborhood look there's gardeners there's people working look at that guy over there he's got a gardener out and mark had to tell him like that's it's not a gardener that's her house she owns she owns that house um and the neighbor being kind of shocked and thrown off and like, oh, well, you know, you know, just kind of being very flustered. Um, and Mark kind of made the point that was before he was married. He's since made the point that he just finds it kind of funny or a little ironic that that man who made the comment now lives next to two black women, which was the woman he saw gardening. And then now my cousin, Mark's Mark's wife. So um, that was an interesting story. And he had a lot of them. I had to keep the episode to 30 minutes. But that's the best part. If you, you know, go out and just kind of hear the stories from people, you hear a lot of kind of funny tidbits like that. You have to wonder if the white men uh, living in between two African-American families or partially African-American has changed his attitude at all because, you know, once you meet people that maybe you were suspect of or afraid of or whatever, once you meet them, everything, all of that goes away most of the time. Maybe. You know, I'll tell you, I'm not going to be the one to ask him, but I sure hope that's (laughs) that's been his attitude change. (laughs) You've only got about a minute left. You visited a number of communities as Mm -hmm. we've established. Are they all different or are they kind of more or less the same in terms of attitude and uh, approach? I think the ways that they are the same, and there's a lot of ways that they're different, but the ways that they are the same, um, I think, is that is the bubble effect, like I said. No matter where you're from or where you are and if you think you're immune to it or not, um, people have the tendency to live in one area, shop in one area, maybe go to school in that area, uh, converse with people only from that area. And no matter where you are in the city, if you keep doing that, like you won't, like I said, to have a good conversation, there has to be trust. You won't have trust if you don't have any, if you don't find common ground. And to do that, you have to get outside of the bubble. So that was something I saw pretty consistently is that people kind of kept to themselves, um, which I think the first solution to that is going outside of the area. Well, people will have an opportunity to do that more ways than one if they take a look at Smoke City uh, on the web. We'll put a link to all of this on our website at stlpublicradio.org. It's a great project, and uh, I learned a lot, and I'm sure you've learned a lot while you've been doing it. Good to hear. Cammie Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great talking to you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.